You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. He's risen. It's a joy to be together this morning to celebrate our uh, death-defeating, forever-reigning Lord Jesus. If you've got a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And as you're turning there, if you're new, which today brings a lot of new, uh, welcome. My name's Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens. If you're watching online or maybe you're out in the foyer because there was not enough room in here, thank you for being here. We are honored that you chose to worship with us this morning. Uh, We'll jump right in. We've been in a, a series on wisdom for some time now, and we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes here and there throughout the series. And I want to go back to Ecclesiastes again this morning. In verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1, this is Solomon uh, or a Solomon-type figure speaking. And if you don't know who that is, that's okay. Just listen to what he says. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is hevel and a striving after wind. Something happens for pastors from kind of like Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. The pastor world is saturated with all of these tips with all this advice for pastors on how to have a good Easter Sunday. Easter's a big day uh, for church because it's a big day for Christians, which means it's a big day for pastors. And so it's uh, emails or tweets or, or some way that pastors or other people are trying to you know, give advice to pastors in preparation for the day. So it's things like, um, don't forget to pray, which is like, okay, that's a good reminder. Uh, or things like, hey, finish the sermon early in the week so you have time to rest. And it's like, that's not going to happen, but thank you. Or things like, hey, wear a, a, a jacket so that people think you care or know that you care, right? And it's like, all right, fine. But next Sunday, we're back to like button-up shirts that I forgot to iron, right? But in all of that, all of that advice, that, and that's happened for me every year that I've been preaching Easter Sunday, I've never heard this tip. I've never heard someone say, you should preach from Ecclesiastes on Easter Sunday. It's not a typical Easter text. If you got out your phone, if you don't, even if you don't know anything about the Bible, if you got out your phone and you just Googled, you know, best verses for Easter Sunday, you'd see something from all four Gospels and First and Second Corinthians and Romans and Job and Psalms, but you wouldn't find anything from the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's because the book doesn't talk about resurrection at all. It doesn't talk much about hope even. In fact, parts of this book of the Bible, they sound almost anti-Easter. And many will remember this, but the book of Ecclesiastes is a book where the main point of the book is to accuse life. It accuses life under the sun, which is a, a metaphor for this temporal existence that we're all living in. It accuses life under the sun of being hevel, is the Hebrew word. So this wise voice says, I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is hevel, a striving after wind. Hevel is a Hebrew word, and it means smoke or vapor. It's the image of something that just lingers in the air for a moment, and then it's gone. 
So uh, think about something like that with me. Like maybe uh, the last time you were at a kid's birthday party, let's say the kid's turning five, and so there's five candles in their cake, and uh, the candles are lit, and the, can- the cake comes out, everyone sings happy birthday, and then the child blows all the candles out, spits all over the cake in the process, but nobody says anything because it's their birthday. And then right after the candles go out, from each candle, there's just a little cloud of smoke that hovers over the cake for a moment, and then what happens? It's gone. And so if you have that image in your mind, that image of this kind of uh, fading smoke cloud, the Hebrew word for that image is hevel. And 38 times in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes says, that's life. That's your life. Uh, The point is this, that life is really brief. It's really short. It lingers for just a moment. And, And life is frustrating. Like you can control this life about like you can control a cloud of smoke. If you try to grab onto it, it just, you know, slips through your fingers and life doesn't make a whole lot of sense at times. And over and again, this wisdom book accuses life under the sun, this existence that we're all living, of being nothing more than a brief, confusing cloud of smoke. Listen to how one of my favorite theologians, his name's Trimper Longman, he comments on the book. He describes what the voice is saying in this way. He, being Solomon, presents a true assessment of the world apart from the light of God's redeeming love. His perspective on the world and life is restricted. He describes it as life under the sun, that is, apart from heavenly realities, apart from God. In other words, his hopelessness is the result of the curse of the fall without recourse to God's redemption. It describes a world that knows the curse of the fall, but knows nothing of the blessing of redemption or One way to look at it is that the book describes a world without resurrection. Where we would be, the best we could do if this smoke cloud life was all that there is. So it's like the movies where the plot is all about like what life would look like if something really important was missing, like what life would look like in a world uh, where no one had sight. If the plot is a world without resurrection, Ecclesiastes gives wise words to what living in that world looks like, would feel like. And, and I want to spend a few moments stepping into that world together. It's uncomfortable. Uh, we will feel the hopelessness of a world without resurrection, but maybe in doing so, God will get, us, uh, get our attention, stir something in us maybe. Ecclesiastes tells us a few things. I'll name three. In a world without resurrection, time destroys all meaning. Ecclesiastes 1.4 says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Ecclesiastes 1.11 says, There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be. What I imagine is that wherever we are uh, and whoever we are, everyone in the room is at least trying to live a meaningful life. Uh, at, at the very least, we would regret the thought of getting to the end of our life and looking back on our life and realizing that we wasted our life. Nobody buys books about how to live a life that doesn't matter. We want to live a consequential life. And if we had a conversation, we said, okay, what is it that gives our life meaning? And you were to talk about what is it that adds meaning to your life, you would probably say, you know, work. I've got a great job, and I've made something of myself. Maybe you'd talk like that. 
uh, or money. You say, you know what, I've got enough money to meet my needs, and, and I even have enough money to meet the needs of those who don't have as much money as I do. Uh, maybe you talk about pleasure. You'd say, I enjoy my life, and I have fun, and I just bought a boat, and that feels really good. And maybe you talk about family, and I love my spouse, or at least we're trying to love each other better, and I'm uh, proud of my kids, and I just adore them, and I find a lot of meaning there. Maybe you'd even say something like this, I'm a pretty good person. I know worse people than me, at least, and uh, I live wisely. I try to make good decisions. I go to church. I believe in God, and, and all that matters. And if we were talking, and if you were to talk about all of those things, and, and the voice of Ecclesiastes was there, he would interrupt you, and he would say, yeah, I talk about all of that. And as great as all those things are, time will one day destroy all that meaning that you found. A generation goes, and a generation comes. There's no remembrance of former things. And it's not, friends, that all that doesn't matter in the moment, it's that all that only matters for a moment, and then it's over. It's the smoke cloud. What happens to all of those things, time happens to it. Time chews it all up. I think we have a sense of how relentless time is, like how's your New Year's resolution going, right? That was weeks ago. We are a third of the way into the year, and for most of us, as, as resolved as we are at the beginning of the year, what happened? Time happened. The days come, the weeks pass, right? And with the relentlessness of time, meaning just can't keep up with, with time's pace. And Ecclesiastes highlights that. It talks about how things are just so quickly forgotten. Uh, my family watched a lot of March Madness this year, both the girls' tournament and the guys' tournament. Thought it was super entertaining. And one of my kids asked during the game, uh, Dad, who was in the final four when you were a kid? And I said, I don't know. No idea. And they said, okay, well, who was in the final four last year? I said, I don't remember. I watched it. I just don't remember. As far as sports go, I remember that the Mavs won it all in 2011 and the Cowboys won a lot in the 90s. <laughs> and think about that. How many, regardless of what arena we're in, how many accomplishments in the present will one day be the forgotten facts of the future? That's true in sports, that's true in every other arena of life. Someone's life work, their greatest achievement, will one day be part of a conversation 20 years from now where someone says, who did that again? And the other person says, I don't know, I forgot. And Ecclesiastes says that's all of us. Everything you accomplish will be forgotten over time. Or it will be on the other side of a Google search that very few people actually care about. You're not going to remember who preached this Easter sermon 20 years from now. You're not going to remember five years from now. You might not even remember tomorrow who preached this Easter sermon. It's like as some guy with a weird name who made everyone sad on Easter Sunday, right? <laughs> and what Ecclesiastes says, the, the heavily accusation is that nothing we find meaning in escapes that accusation. So family, something that's just personally precious to me. What if I pour my life into my loved ones? That's wonderful. Time still wins. A generation comes, a generation goes. We've all heard the cliche. We've all had the experience of watching or hearing from someone who's older with older kids who look at a family with younger kids and say what? It goes by so fast. And there's the other side of that too. A generation goes, a generation comes. Who in the room knows their great-grandfather's full name and birth date? And it's not that it doesn't matter in the moment. It's just that it only matters for a moment. What happens is time does its work. Even about wisdom, it says, and much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. There are just so limits, so many limits to what we can do meaningfully in this hell world. And with the passing of time with wisdom comes frustration. 
And if we think of all that we hold on to as meaning and mattering, when we step into a world without resurrection, it's just nothing more than hevel. It's like uh, trying to find meaning by trying to hold on to smoke. It just slips through your hands. In a world without resurrection, pain has no comfort. Ecclesiastes 4.1, this is a really heavy verse. It's one of those verses where you're like, I can't believe this is in the Bible. Again, I saw all the oppressions, this is injustice, this is people hurting other people, that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. He sees people hurting and there's no comfort for them. And then he says this really sad disparaging thing. And he says, those who are dead are better than those who are alive because to suffer with no comfort is itself a kind of death, a slow death. Look, if we had the time and if, and if, and if we had a close relationship, we could all go around the room and talk about how we've suffered in our lives. Some of us could talk about how we're currently suffering right now in our life. Can, can you imagine if in that conversation, the only thing we had to offer one another is something like those who have already died are better off than we are. Or I guess we could do what, what some people do and just offer these empty platitudes like, hey, look on the bright side of things or uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I, I think the platitudes are actually worse. In a world without resurrection, there's no comfort to offer. There's only tears multiplied by the absence of hope. And here's the worst one. In a world without resurrection... Death is the end. That's it. Uh, 2, 16 and 17, For of the wise, as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. Ecclesiastes 9, 5, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Oh, I, I know it's uncomfortable and heavy, and maybe not what we came to hear, uh, but death awaits all of us. We have become, as a society, really good at ignoring the fact that we're all terminal. Uh, we live in a world where mortality is uh, everyone else's problem. In January, I read a quote from a Yale professor who wrote on death. His name's Christian Wyman, and I think about it a lot after I read it. He said, life is short, we say, in one way or another, but in truth, because we cannot imagine our own death until it's thrust upon us, we live in a land where only other people die. Meaning we're good at living in denial about our own death. And so if we talk about it, it's always this abstract thing. And sometimes when we're thinking about it for other people, we can romanticize it or minimize it. But when there's this moment of it being thrust upon us, or even the thought, when we give sincere thought to our own mortality... We long for answers that hold weight. Like, um, remember that scene in The Lion King? That was a hard turn. Yeah. <laughs> I do too. Uh, when Simba is asking his dad about the fact that they eat the antelope, and I guess he's feeling conflicted about that, and so his dad, a father, starts talking to his son about death. And he says, you know, we eat them, but then eventually we die, and we become the dirt, and then they eat us. And it's just this circle of life. And Simba's like, ah, oh, that's great. Well, I watched that scene with one of my kids when they were younger. 
And they were devastated. <laughs> and I said, what's wrong? And they said, Dad, is that what's going to happen to me? Like, am, am I just going to become antelope food? And I looked at him and I said, yeah. No, <laughs> of course not. No son wants to hear that's it from their dad, right? They, they don't want to hear that's all there is after this. And it's, it's this experience where the answers that sometimes people give about death, they are good enough if it's an abstract thing. They are good enough when we live in a land where only other people die. They are not good enough when we're asking about it for us. Even the least religious among us long for some sort of meaningful existence after death. And maybe we can dress it up when we're thinking of other people's lives and live much of our life like we live in a land where only other people die. But when it comes to us, look, when you have that, is that going to happen to me moment? Gosh, we want something more than just this is it. Death as the end is a really bad ending, and I think we all know it. You know, I stand as a pastor in this space so often, comforting the dying, and I just can't imagine when they ask what's going to happen to look and say, the wise dies just like the fool. It made very little difference how you lived. You have no reward. Your memory will soon be forgotten. How tragic. In that world, death has the final word. It's sad and it's heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking end to a story that we instinctively know should have a better ending. But friends, this is the world without resurrection. Time destroys meaning, no matter what it is. Pain has no comfort. Death is the end. How's that? How's that sound? That's terrible. That's depressing. Some of you are thinking, why did I come today? I could be at brunch right now. And I, as I think about it, I just wonder, how would we even live in a world like that? And maybe some of this sounds familiar to some of us. I guess when it comes to uh, meaning, you just busy yourself with work and then distract yourself with pleasure and try to forget that time is winning. Uh, when it comes to pain, try and avoid pain at all costs. Do everything you can to keep suffering out of your life. And then when you can't, because none of us can, just numb it. Never talk about it. Bury it down deep until it comes out of your life in ways you can't control. When it comes to death, just live in denial. Don't think about it. Tell yourself you live in a world where only other people die. And then when you have to face it, just crumble in despair at the thought that all you got was the cloud of smoke. You lingered for a moment, and then that's it. Because in a world without resurrection, the defining reality of my life and your life is fading smoke. That's all we got. Can I tell you something? It's really beautiful news. You don't live in a world without resurrection. It's why we're here. Jesus died. He did not stay dead. He lived, died, and lived again. He's risen. You live in a resurrection world. Taryn read this verse for us in Romans 8. It's the chapter of the Bible that's all about Jesus. It's about his resurrection. In verse 20, it's the only reference in the New Testament to the book of Ecclesiastes. And it says this, for the creation was subjected to futility. Remember that word, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The word futility in Greek is the Hebrew word hevel. And it's saying, like Ecclesiastes, this world is not as it's supposed to be. But it doesn't say it's all futility. It doesn't say it ends in futility. It's only hevel. It says this hevel world in Jesus is giving way to hope. 
Stay with me. I just think this is wonderful. In Jesus' death on the cross, all the marks of the hevel world wage war against him. Everything that we've named so far. You have the meaninglessness of life warring against him in an innocent man dying like the guilty. Jesus is wisdom personified, and he's crucified between two fools. How the wise dies just like the fool. That's hevel. You have Jesus in pain with no comfort. No one wipes his tears. Luke says the soldiers mock him and offer him sour wine. Behold the tears of the oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. That's hevel. And we see Jesus' life end in death. His disciples scatter. It's all over. It's a devastating ending. And if that's it, then none of us would know his name. If Jesus dies and stays dead, we're not here. There is no reward, and the memory of him would be forgotten. And all that's left is the heaven world. But when our Savior comes back to life, the world above the sun breaks into life under the sun, and a resurrection world begins. And all who belong to Jesus who've repented of their sin and put their trust in him, who looked to his cross for forgiveness and his resurrection for life. What's true for us is the defining reality over our life is not the fading smoke. The defining reality over our life is the risen Lord. And listen to how different a resurrection world sounds. Instead of a generation comes and a generation goes, time destroys all meaning. You have followers of Jesus say things like this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the risen Savior Jesus, I found meaning in life that time can't take away. As brief as this life is, as much as I can't control, as much as the heaven is something we all experience, I know my life is hidden with Christ and God and work and pleasure and family, and wisdom, and everything else in this temporal world takes on the eternal meaning of living for the glory of Jesus. And I can offer my life to him. And even the parts that are soon forgotten by the world are seen by a king who reigns over a kingdom that has no end. In a resurrection world, instead of pain with no comfort, you hear followers of Jesus say things like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. I need you to know something. The men and women I know who most hope in the resurrection and who most long for the return of Jesus are those who've lost the most, those who've suffered the most. Many are in this room. And this day means something different to them because they have a wound that only a risen Lord in an empty tomb is big enough to heal. They've found comfort and purpose in their pain through a God who is near to the brokenhearted as one who himself knows what it's like to have a broken heart. I think of the poem. We read it every Good Friday. It's just beautiful. It's called Jesus of the Scars, and it says this, other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you stumbled to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and no God has wounds but you alone. And there's no comfort in pain like a God whose comforting arms are covered in his own scars. And if we had time to go around the room and share how we have suffered or maybe even how we are suffering, we would have so much to say to one another by comfort in Jesus. Not empty platitudes, but words that are true and filled with lament and filled with goodness and beauty. And then in a resurrection world, instead of death is the end, you hear followers of Jesus say things like this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ and the risen Savior Jesus. Instead of death being the end, we will see the end of death. We can face death with hope. We have a better answer to give when death is not something that's abstract, when it's not just something of living in a land where only other people die, but when it actually comes to us. Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York. I love him. He's wonderful. We're actually close friends. He doesn't know that, but I like to, I like to think that. In 2019, he started writing a book on hope. And the first chapter of his hope book was on the resurrection. And he's, he's super smart. He's, he's brilliant. He took a few volumes of work that historians have done providing evidence for the resurrection. And he distilled all of that information down to one chapter so that people like me can understand it. And his book begins with the argument that we have as much evidence to believe the resurrection happened as we have evidence to believe anything happened 2,000 years ago. According to history, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, buried, and three days later he rose again. And that's chapter one of his book. And everything else he says in the book about hope hinges on the reality of chapter one. While he's writing the book, he went to the doctor feeling sick and was diagnosed with late-stage pancreatic cancer, which he's still fighting today. In the middle of writing a book about hope, he's diagnosed with a kind of cancer that 80% of victims die from in the first year of diagnosis. In an interview I listened to, he's talking about his book and uh, he's talking about his diagnosis. And he said, the first thing I did after getting diagnosed is I went back and I read the first chapter of my book. He read his own words on the resurrection because he said he needed to be convinced again that Jesus rose. He needed to know like never before that he believed in a world where resurrection happened. And he said, after some time, I was convinced again, and I knew I could actually face death with hope. And now not only does my mind believe it, but so does my heart. And what I love and find so beautiful about that is he doesn't say, I wrote about hope, and then I got cancer, and I had to rewrite the book. He says, I wrote about hope, then I had to face my own death, and I found in a resurrection world everything I had written was not only true, it was all I needed. And friends, in this world, because death is not the end, pastors who write book on hope don't have to rewrite the book when they get cancer. Instead, they can embody the message. And in this world, fathers can look at sons and say, no, you won't be antelope food. You can trust Jesus. He will one day glorify and physically resurrect your body and you will co-reign with Christ himself. And in a resurrection world, pastors like me get to stand in front of a congregation I love like you and tell you that we live in a resurrection world. We have meaning in Jesus that time can't take away. We have comfort in pain from a savior who has his own scars. We have hope in the face of death because in his resurrection, Jesus made death terminally ill and in his return, he will make all who follow him eternally whole. Two things and I'll pray. Christian, believer in Jesus, my hope in stepping into a world without resurrection is to disrupt us a bit on a day like today because we're vulnerable to something. Oh, if, if all that happens for us today is we dressed up and felt obligated and took pictures and moved on, we've wasted our time. You, look right at me, you live in a resurrection world. Live like it. 
by the grace of God through the redemption that is in Jesus. May we live like we live in this resurrection world and hope and celebrate and grieve and love and trust Jesus as those who've been given life above the sun. Help us, Lord. And if you're here and you're not a believer, look, there's so much more to say. And there's lots of conversations that maybe you'd like to have or would need to have. Like you would say, hey, I've got a lot of questions about God. And I would say, I, I do too. Or maybe you'd say, look, I've got a lot of hurt. Specifically, I've got a lot of hurt from Christians. And I want nothing to do with God because I've been hurt by Christians who look nothing like God. And, and I would say, I've been on both sides of that. I've, I've been that kind of Christian and I've been hurt by those kinds of Christians. But I think, friend, knowing that this might be my only chance to say this to you, I need to say something. I love you. And without Jesus, the world without resurrection is the only world you'll ever know. Time destroys meaning. Pain has no comfort. Death is the end. And this is all you've got. The resurrection world is only for those who follow the risen Lord. And that's a harsh distinction, but I need you to hear the harsh distinction so I can make a loving invitation. God's word says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it's a come as you are invitation. It is not a be better than you are invitation. It's not a hide who you are or try harder than you are, but a come as you are to Jesus, the risen Savior. He is kind. He is forgiving. He wanted you to be here today. I don't know your story. I don't know who invited you. I don't know how you got into our doors, but he wanted you to be here today to hear that you, you can have a hope You can be loved by a perfect God who has secured for us as Christians an eternity that is imperishable and a life that is not stripped away by time and pain that can be comforted and a story that can look death in the face and know Jesus secured for me a better ending than this. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. Oh, God, just to name what's in my heart. For the Christians in the room, you know, I don't know what kind of Christian they would call themselves. Maybe I'd call myself faithful. Maybe I'd call myself prodigal. Maybe I'd call myself apathetic. Maybe I'd call myself deconstructing. Whatever kind of Christian we would call ourselves. I pray that for all of us, by your spirit, I can't do it. I'm just a guy. You're God. By your Holy Spirit, God, would you overwhelm the hearts of those whose hearts are already yours? Would you overwhelm it with a confidence that this is a resurrection world and you are a risen Lord? And so where we need conviction, convict us and may we confess and repent. Where we need comfort, would you wrap your scar-filled arms around us and remind us you know what it's like? We need you. For those in the room, God, that are not believers, they'd say, I don't really know what I believe about God. I don't know what God believes about me. I just pray for a clear picture of you, Jesus, that you would uh, overcome the distortions of who you are that are out there everywhere, that you would overcome the objection that says, I don't need this, that you would overcome the objection that says, I don't deserve this, 
and you would just flood a heart with salvation. Like my old friend, God, who comes up every Easter Sunday and reminds me that God saved him on Easter Sunday. He went home and told his mom, and God saved his mom on Easter Sunday. Would you, by your spirit, move in such a way that it's a lineage-changing salvation, Jesus? We love you. We need you. Amen.